So we've been in a series called The Way I See It. It's just been a, a bunch of fairly standalone messages, not building one to another, but the goal has just been to take some societal myths and preach biblical truth to them. And we've handled a whole host of topics from God, the church, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Um, we've talked about a lot of different things. Um, today, we're going to talk about one of the most important things a believer could ever have going on in their life, and it's simply prayer. We're going to talk about prayer today. We're going to handle, really, I've been, I've been sharing a myth and then a truth, but today is going to be a little bit different. I'm just going to share one myth and then just preach a whole lot of truth to one myth, because that one myth, it trumps pretty much everything else. But as, as, this, as we've been in this series, the reason for this series is because we're, we're contrasting even our own viewpoints with God's truth. And, and in America, we have this thing where we value our viewpoint, I believe, way too much. And we think that we have this liberty to decide on our own what is truth. And while we have liberty and we have freedom, we don't have the freedom to decide for ourselves what is truth because God already decided that when he wrote, when he penned scripture. And so, but we have this idea that the way we see things is the most important thing. And the problem is sometimes we get it right. And yes, that's a problem because when we've gotten something right, we think now all of our viewpoints are right. Well, I was right about this one, so all of them must be right. That's kind of the way we go at life. And so the passage of scripture we've been using to shape this message in this series is in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, when the Bible says, be careful how you think your life is shaped by your thoughts. You know, a lot of versions talk about the heart. It talks that that passage of scripture talks about, be careful, guard your heart because your life is formed out of your heart. And, and, and that's, that's fine, but the context of the word heart in that isn't what we normally think it to be as our feelings and, and this, this organ inside of our body. It's actually the way it thinks is what it's referencing. That's why I like that good news version of the Bible in that translation because it gives it a lot more uh, power to that thought because the truth is how we think about things will absolutely shape how we live. Whether it's how we think about God, how we think about our children, our jobs, that will shape how we live. And how we live is what is on display for all to see. And so that's why I always, I always push back and I always challenge the way we think because it's so, so critically important to think because the Bible says that life and death is in the power of the tongue because what we think is what we speak. Joyce Meyer wrote a book called The Battlefield of the Mind. The greatest battle you will ever face is in the six inches between your ears. And so it, that's, and that's why it's so critical to get the way we think in line with scripture. So here's the myth that we're going to handle today as it relates to prayer. I have heard this many times. I have heard this through counsel, in church, out of church, in every context that I can imagine. It's, it's that there is no rhyme or reason to God's response to prayer, that God randomly answers prayer as if he's hearing what he wants to hear and then says, yeah, you know what? Close my eyes. I'm going to choose this one. You know, kind of the way people try to study scripture and they say, well, I don't really don't know what I want to read. So let me just flip through the Bible. Oh, yeah, let me read this. Great. That passage says in all things moderation. Great. Now I know I can go and do anything I want as long as I do it moderately. 
It's the same thing we do when it comes to prayer. We have this idea that, that God is randomly answering prayer or if he answers them at all. God just sits up there. He doesn't do anything. And so I have this interesting illustration story that I want to start off with. Is several years ago, I remember I was on the golf course and I was standing over my ball and I was actually playing really well and I was playing with a friend who I never beat, who always beats me. Like, I'm talking like 101 and 0 against me. Like, I can never beat him. And I'm faced with the last hole. I'm up two strokes. I'm like, I'm going to win. I'm going to actually beat him. And so I stood over my golf ball and I said, Jesus, just help me to hit a good shot. Help me to win this game. I just, I just want to beat him once. Help me to hit a good shot. So sure enough, I lean over my ball. I draw my club back and wham. And I look up and I'm like, oh man, that shot sucks. And I ended up like way right behind trees. Long story short, he went 102-0 against me. And I realized on that day, I made a decision on that day, Jesus, I'm never going to involve you in my golf game again. I'm just going to, because I hit a bad shot, I slammed my club on the ground, and I was like, God, you did not answer my prayer. Now, that's a goofy thought, but the reality is the mindset is how we think when we pray and don't see God move. The mindset is exactly how we think when we pray and nothing happens. And we think, well, why doesn't God answer our prayer the way we think he should? And I know many of us at some point in our lives have prayed passionately with our hearts and souls on the line. We have prayed passionately for someone else, whether it's for their salvation or it's for their healing or something. We've prayed passionately only to see God not move the way we think he should. Maybe it was praying over someone who is sick, who lost their battle with, with cancer or lost their battle with another illness, and we immediately pull ourselves away from God, suggesting, God, you didn't answer my prayer. And so we have this, this mentality that God has this random way of answering prayer, or he has this just sitting up there, and he's really not answering at all. Maybe you've prayed over and over and over for your marriage to be healed only to be divorced today. Or whatever your context is, the thought is, why isn't God answering the prayer the way that I thought he would? And so that's a challenging thought process. And today's message is going to absolutely challenge you. It's going to question the way you think. It's going to, stop, it's going to step on your toes a little bit. Trust me, I, I share this often. When I preach the gospel, I preach first to myself, never in a, in a suggestive suggestion that I have this figured out, but first to myself. And so every point of my message today has rested and, 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 and rested in my heart and stomped on my own toes, so to speak. And so it's going to challenge you. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to be mad at me. That's okay. I tell people that's okay. I got big, broad shoulders. I can handle it. But it, I just want to bring some truth to this realm of prayer that is so critically important to our faith and our walk with Christ. So here's the first truth that I want to give you. Your, your relationships matter to God. Remember, we're talking about the context of prayer this morning. So everything that I'm going to mention to you 
is in the context of prayer. Your relationships matter to God. The way we treat one another matters to God. Are we forgiving? Are we growing in our relationships? Are we welcoming? Are we inviting? Are we having these biblical relationships that matter to God? You got a note sheet when you came in. That's the first line on your note sheet. You can keep track with us. The Bible says in Mark chapter 11, verse number 24 and 25, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. What a powerful promise that you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you have received it, it will be yours. And of course, we stop there because that's the exciting part of the verse. That tells me, hey, I can speak whatever I want. Matter of fact, entire theologies have been based on that. Hey, I want that house, so I'm going to pray and believe that that house is mine, so it's now become mine. Or I want that car, or I want that job, or I want that woman, or I want that man, or go on and on and on and on. But look what he says in verse 25. He says, but when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive you your sins too. Look at that. He connected prayer directly to forgiveness. Jesus is suggesting that if you have unforgiveness in your heart, how can God the Father forgive you and then ultimately answer your prayer? Yeah, that stinks. That's not good preaching. I don't don't like the way that feels. Because that suggests that if I have any ill will in my heart towards anyone in my life, that God's going to be resisting my speech to him, my requests to him are going to be met with some resistance because I'm harboring unforgiveness in my heart. Let me tell you, that has been a challenge for me in my life. Because just like you, I've been wronged in my life from time time to time. Just like you, I have been hurt and I have been broken by other people. And from time to time, I have felt that pain to the point of, yeah, I love you, but... That's, that's just so we can clarify something that's really not love, okay? Well, Jesus said, I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. Yeah, that, that kind of speech, remember what I told you, there's power in the words. Those words aren't going to help you love anyone, much less the person that has hurt you. Now, yes, you put some guards in place so you, that person doesn't continue to hurt you, but forgiveness and welcoming to that person is critical, whether it's your mother or father for the way they've treated you, a relative that has hurt you or harmed you. And when I, and listen, Jesus doesn't put parameters on this. So, so we're going to touch on some pretty, pretty difficult situations. What about the person that has maybe, maybe mistreated you sexually when you were a child? Yeah, that's very real, very painful. Or just in the news most recently, the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania. And most, if you've been on social media in any way, shape, or form, you already know about that. A thousand plus kids in, a, in one parish. Yes, Jesus said that forgiveness must be extended to that, and to that person, and to those situations. That's, that's what the Bible, the Bible's getting very real when it comes, Jesus is getting very real when it comes to prayer. You know, he's showing us very clearly through the words of Jesus that when you're praying, your relationships with others matter. Holding that bitterness and holding that unforgiveness in your heart and then expecting God to just magically do whatever we ask him to do is just foolish because that's not how Jesus works. 
So if you find yourself in a situation where you say something like, man, why isn't God answering any of my prayers? Why is nothing I'm saying getting through to him? I want you to ask yourself, who in your life have you not forgiven? Now that not may, may not be the case for everyone. So we're going to get through a lot of what keeps our prayers from being, being heard and being answered. But one of them could very well be, what does the unforgiveness look like in my heart? right now. Another truth I want to speak into your life this morning is that your motives matter. So unforgiveness in your heart matters. The way your relationships are with one another, they matter to God. Your motives matter. Your motives matter to God when you pray. James chapter 4 verse 3, the Bible says, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Here we go. We get into these thought processes of, well, God didn't answer my prayer the way that I, I, I thought that he should or that he would. Because that's, and that's why I pray the way that I pray before I preach every single message that I decrease that he would increase. But more importantly, I say that our preferences and our will and our desire decreases. So that his preference, his will, and his desire increases. Because here's what I know. In a group as diverse as this from different races, religious backgrounds, upbringings in church to thought processes, whether they're more, more, we're more on the liberal side or more on the conservative side, whether we somehow fit, try to figure out how to tote the lines in the middle, we're all different. We all have different preferences. But the reality is our pre- preferences, including my own, mean absolutely nothing to God. Because he has his preference and his preference is supreme and his preference is what's written in the word, not what we think it might say or what we think it might refer to. And so James is saying that when you ask, you don't get what you're asking for because your motives are wrong. As a matter of fact, you can find all through scripture this taking place, especially with the the biblical Pharisees who they thought they were going to be heard because of their words, their many words, their elegance of speech. That's why Paul, who once was a Pharisee, refuted that exact, that exact thought process when he said, I don't come with an elegance of speech, because he could have. See, the thing people don't realize about Paul, Paul was one of the most educated people in all of Scripture. He knew more Scripture, more about the Bible than anyone else, because he was a Pharisee. It's who he was. It was what was, he was living in, ten, in temple. He was listening to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and reading the scribes. And he was an educated man. Yet he said, I don't come with an elegance of a speech, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why? Because he says that what happens is people come with all this elegance of speech and they begin to pray. And, they, and then when they're done, they kind of puff their chest and say, man, I think God likes me. I think that prayer sounded really good. And, and what happens is it starts to question our motives. You know, and I, I, I again, I, I can only speak to things that I've experienced in my own life as it relates to the things that I preach. So that's why I share a lot of, a, a lot of myself with you and I'm transparent because there was a season in my life before ministry that I was like praying like this, God Give me this successful business. Let me make a whole ton of money because when I do, I'm going to give it to the church and I'm going to support missionaries and I'm going to, I'm going to bless everyone around me. And while the, it sounds like that is the case, but truly the motives of my heart were, God, I just want money. 
And by praying, God, I just want money, whether I mask it with the good appearance of I'm going to give it away, I'm going to bless, and I probably would have because I was a giver anyway, but my motives were this is what I want. So God, give me what I want. So let me tell you an exact response to that. God gave me none of that. As a matter of fact, he reminded me of my call into ministry and then said, you know what? I'm going to take it all away from you. Take your house, I'm going to take your car, I'm going to take everything, and I'm going to make it to where you have to say yes to me. And so I did, because I'm dumb, but not that dumb. And it took a while. But the reality is, we have these selfish motives. We have these selfish motives, and it's natural. It's, it's, it's who we are. We are selfish people. We want what we want. I mean, we've created, look at, look at, look at the United States of America and how it's been shaped on what we want when we want it. Just look at the food industry and how that's happened. You know, we want what we want. Nowadays, you can't, if you go to a restaurant, one of these family restaurants, fast food, whether it's McDonald's or Burger King or Chick-fil-A or whatever the case is, and you go in or you go through the drive-thru and it takes a minute or two longer than you think it should, you're blowing up some corporation's complaint department. Trust me, I know this. I handle it for Chick-fil-A. I get complaints like this. God is my witness. It took me four and a half minutes to get my food. That is absolutely ridiculous. I should have had it in two and a half minutes. That's, that sounds foolish, right? I literally got that complaint this Saturday. And I'm like, four and a half minutes to get a meal? Whew. Man, that's fast. But it wasn't fast enough. Because we have this idea of I want what I want when I want it. And the problem is we've created it anyway. That's how the whole, I mean, the fast food industry is a perfect example of that. It just suggests that, hey, I want to I wanna be able to get somebody food fast. So let's do that. And then the concept of the drive through came and said, you know, I don't even want them to have to get out of their cars. Let's just increase laziness. So they don't even have to get out of their car. Let's just bang a hole in the, in the side of the building and feed it to them right through a window. We created this culture. Americans and enterprise and capitalism created this culture, which is fine. Those are not bad things. But when they are left unsubmitted to God, it creates an entitlement of I want what I want when I want it and how I want it. And then we somehow think that we're going to approach God differently. That's not how that works. I mean, think about it. When you, are, when you need something financially and you look at your bills and your bills are due in two weeks and you don't have the money, you start, God, I need money right now. I need it right now. I got to have it right now. And we start wanting what we want when we want it. God's always on time. He's never late. By our standards, he might be late. But to his standards, it's right on time. See, and that's the, that's the mentality we adopt. So our motives become selfish and our motives become questionable. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, the Bible says, People may be pure in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their motives. See, we think that we can have this appearance, give this appearance of righteousness, this appearance of unselfishness, but God's like looking in here and say, well, what's real in here? Not what's real out here. This is really easy to decorate and fix. This is real easy to fix and real easy to present. So what matters when you pray, your relationships with God's children matters and your motives 
matter. The third thing that I want you to get when it comes to prayer that matters to God is the way you, ouch, I'm, gonna, I'm already feeling the pain now. The way you live matters. We want to live however we want to live, and then God answer whatever we want to have from God. The way you live matters. Look at James chapter 5, verse 16, just the second half of the verse. The Bible says, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. The earnest prayer of a righteous person, not the prayer of a casual Christian, not the prayer of a Sunday-only Christian, not the prayer of oh, I'm around my Christian brothers, so let me just the, the good church answer. Oh, yes, pastor, I'm blessed and I'm highly favored. I'm like, whoo, man, that's holiness right there. I got to back out of that. But the reality is we have to live a specific way. The prayer of a righteous person has power. So if we're not living our lives for Christ, yet expecting Christ to answer everything we want, yeah, you're going to go with a whole lot of unanswered prayers because it is connected. You can't take, you can't separate them. It doesn't say the prayer of an unrighteous person or the contemporary or the casual Christian or the prayer of the Baptist because they have it right or the Lutherans and they've got it all together or the Catholics or they, they got the Pentecostals. You know, they got it all together. Their prayers are the ones. That's not what God's talking about. God's saying the prayers of a righteous person, the one who lives for him has power and is effective. Not just the average everyday person. Now, I can't speak on behalf of God for this, but, but I can put it in my own terms and, and ask myself this question, or I'd even ask you this question, is when I think about, I try to relate things to what I see in humanity, and when I think about how God is speaking here, I, I'm looking at two situations when it comes to someone who needs something from someone else. Because that's really what the case is. We come to God, we are someone who needs something from someone else. And we look at these two situations and we see this, let's look at two families. And we see a family over here that where the head of the house refuses to work because he's had job opportunities, but they, he feels like they're beneath him. So I'm not going to work, but yet I still need money. So let me come and ask you for money. You know the situation. You know that he's had job opportunities. You know that he's had plenty of opportunities to, to, to provide, yet just cho chooses not to because I, I want what I want. And then comes to you and says, I need money. Our thought process is like, you, you, you've had like two or three opportunities to get a job. I'm not giving you my hard-earned money. And then you have this other family that works two and three jobs to try to make ends meet. They struggle in every day of their life trying to figure it out, but they're working hard and they're working at it. And you have those two situations faced with you. Who are you more likely to give it to? You're more likely to give it to the one who wants to work, the one that's trying really hard, doing two or three jobs to earn something, but just falling a little short and just needs a little bit of help. That's, that's, that's the way I view this with God. I got this one person who could care less, but just wants what they want, but they're still going to ask for it with the expectation of giving it. Or this person who's really putting in the work, really putting in the effort and trying. Where is it going to go? The reality is when it comes to, to prayer connected to how we live, it's righteousness is not perfection. No pastor's not telling you to live perfect. Righteousness is not perfection. It's a condition of the heart as it relates to God. And don't be fooled into thinking that your heart is connected to God. Because remember, the heart is wicked and deceitful. 
It lies to us. What, no, what, what, how you know is does your life reflect this? Are you a biblical husband? Are you a biblical wife? Are you a honoring employee? Or do you gripe and complain and about everyone that you work with and work for? These things matter to God. This is the condition of the heart. This is what righteousness is. Righteousness isn't I just read the Bible or I go to church on Sunday. Righteousness is what do I do with my life? How do I act and what do people see? Because that's what determines righteousness in your heart. Here's the reality. God is not going to say no to you because you've had a big issue and a big struggle in your life. But those big issues and those big struggles do come with consequences. You sowed something there that you have to reap. That doesn't mean that God can't use you nor use that situation, nor will he not answer your prayer. But there are some things that, you, that have happened that you have to deal with the consequence of what's gone on. I know a lot of, including myself, I've had to deal with some consequence. Matter of fact, I've had to deal with some consequence of some sin from my younger life when it comes to the younger life of my children. I look at some of the decisions that they make and say, oh my gosh, my, that's me. And I got to figure out how to get that to not be me because I know where I went. But these are some of the consequences of the struggles that we have. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. It's just more evidence that God is listening to those that serve him. Now, let me be very, very clear about something. What I'm not saying is if you just try really, really hard and you're better than the people sitting next to you in church, then God has to do everything that you ask. I'm not saying that because that's, that's kind of what we do. Well, I'm not as bad as this person sitting next to me, so God should... Should, should do something for me. But I'm not also, what I'm also not saying is I'm not saying that you've blown it so big and it's really big and God's just going to ignore everything that you ask. What I'm saying is it appears that on some levels, the way you live matters to God when you pray. And don't take that to look into the world and say, oh, well, this person does, denies God and is wealthy because there's a reward for that. What I'm saying is for the believer, for the one who's committed their heart and life to Christ, it matters how you live. So how your relationships matter, your motives matter, the way you live matters. Number four, your faith matters. Got to understand that your faith matters. James chapter one, verse six and seven, the Bible says, but when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Your faith matters to God. And here's what's really cool to me is that God seems to really respond to just simple and childlike faith. Yet some of us, the weird thing is the longer we do this whole church thing, the less childlike our faith looks because it becomes so consumed with theology and so consumed with doctrine and so consumed with my own preference of what I believe to be right. And, and, and we think that the church has got it wrong here and church has got it wrong there. And we become jaded and the only thing it affects is our faith. Your faith matters. 
Some of us, we've become so educated that we know what God's not going to do. We tell him what he can't do. And when, and what, and what, when this book tells me that all things are possible with him, and at so many levels, your faith matters to God especially when it comes to receiving what you need. Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 30. This is Jesus. After Jesus left the girl's home, two blind men followed along behind him, shouting, Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying. And here, think about this picture. Jesus is walking away from what he had just done, his miracle in this house. And he's walking away from these people. And they're shouting, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. And he just keeps on walking. Think about that. We have this image of Jesus that he's stopping every single second to just, oh, yes, here, he'll, that's not, he was walking away, two people following, he kept on walking because the very next verse, the very next part of the word says, they went right into the house where he was staying. So he went from one house to the next, being followed by two people, seemingly not even addressing them as they followed him into the house that he was going to. Here's what you have to understand from that. Sometimes you have got to chase Jesus down until he can't be, until he's caught. Because that's what pursuing him is. That's what chasing after him is. It's not, oh, I prayed and God didn't do it, so I tried that prayer thing. No, you didn't try that prayer thing until you died trying it. That's the way I look at living this life of faith. I haven't tried to live as a believer. I haven't tried to live as a Christian. I've tried when I've died. Because then my race is over and it's finished, and now I've given my best effort. And the way I look at it is simply that if I end up at the end of my life, and I've expired, and I was wrong about everything, I lived an honorable life. I honored my wife. I honored my children. I led people the best of my ability. And even if I'm wrong, I've lived a good life. But if I'm right, then I'm inheriting riches from God. I would choose to live that way because the faith that I have matters. He says, this is Jesus' question to them. He says, do you believe I can make you see? Think about, let's just look at the practicality of how difficult this is. Two blind men chasing Jesus. You can't see, but you're following him. That'll that'll, that'll preach all by itself. Let uh, Let me get moving here. He says, do you believe I can make you see? And their response, yes, Lord. That was their response, yes, Lord. And Jesus said, because of your faith, it will happen. Then their eyes were opened and they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone about this. But instead, they went and spread his fame all over the region. Can you imagine? I'd be like, come on, Jesus. You just made me see. I haven't been able to see anything all my life. And now I can see and you want me to tell nobody? (laughs) I'm disobeying that one. I'm telling everybody. But their faith was just so legitimate and so real that they chased after Jesus. They chased him into someone else's house. Imagine yours the house that he was staying at. Imagine he's over here and he's, this is going to mess with some of you. Imagine he's over here in a rough neighborhood and he's preaching and he's getting people saved and delivered and healed and, and then starts walking to your house because your house is where he's staying the night. And yet some, some, some people in desperate need following Jesus right into your house. What is your response? Jesus walked in, but then so did some crowd that you're not really 
partial to having in your home walked in with them? What is your response to that? There's so much in that passage of scripture that we can think about and chew on, but in the, in the effort of saving time, I got to keep moving. So your faith matters. That's why I love kids. Kids are amazing because they're, they're, their faith is just so innocent. It's just so pure. It's not jaded by this world or by religious debates. It's not jaded by hurt and pain. It is just pure. And to hear a child declare something in the name of Jesus is just powerful. It just, it, it's, and, but that's, that's the goal that Christ wants us to have, that childlike faith that suggests that I'm going to believe it even if it doesn't exist. There are kids, five-year-olds, you can have an argument. Go have an argument with a five-year-old who believes in unicorns and go tell them that they don't exist. They're going to give you a hundred reasons why they do. You're going to walk away wondering, do they really? Because they believe stuff with such purity and with such passion. It's only this world that crushes that out of them and then become adults that look like you and me. But Jesus is calling us to get back to that place where our faith is just pure, where it's just we're foolish enough to believe that he's going to do what we've asked him to do. Because truth is, in, as an adult, in the way we think, it is foolishness to think that God would do that, that he would move heaven and earth. I mean, this is the way that he, your faith, just a story, just from Old Testament story, just was recalled to my mind as I was thinking about it. Even the words that you use do not have to have the right connection, as long as the heart is connected and your faith is connected. Because if you remember the battle that took place, as God had commanded his children to go and take the promised land. What did Joshua ask for? God, will you cause the sun to stand still? He didn't even have it scientifically right. He just knew he needed more light because the battle was raging and he needed more light so that the Israelites could win the battle. And so he said, God, cause the sun to stand still, not realizing it's the earth that revolves around the sun. You don't even have to have the right phrase, the right words. You don't even have to speak with this intelligence and knowledge of knowing everything. If your heart is connected to God and what he wants and what you need and what he wants is connected to him, that he's going to do whatever he has to do. So what did he do? He stopped the earth from turning. Come on. If there is a God that's going to stop the earth from turning, you tell me he won't heal your broken heart? You tell me he won't provide for your needs financially? You tell me he won't heal your marriage? Last thing, the last truth when it comes to prayer is, and this is an important one because this is where we start to wrestle even more, is God's will matters. God's will matters. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. This is the confidence we have in knowing it's God's will. So what, what I'm not saying is this. When it comes to the way you pray and the way you seek God, you don't ever have to say, Lord, if it be your will that I am healed, 
then let it be. But if I'm not, then so be it. That's, that's, that's actually play, praying contradictory to Scripture because the Bible tells us that he, we are healed. Now, the nature of our healing and the timing of our healing and the location of our healing is all up to him. But the fact is, the Bible says that by the stripes of Jesus Christ, we are made whole. It says we are healed. That word healed means we are made whole. So that means mind, body, spirit, we are made whole. So you don't have to say, if it be your will, heal me from my headache. No, God, heal me from my headache. I your will aside, that, that's, I, need that, I need that healing. And he says, I'm here to heal you. So that's not what I'm talking about. But sometimes when you pray for someone's healing for a long time and it doesn't take place on this side of earth, this side of heaven, we start to question. And then we, to tell ourselves, and this is going to irritate some people, but to tell our, make ourselves feel better, we say, oh, well, you know, God just needed another angel. That's not biblically correct. Just so y'all know, we don't become angels when we die. And so that's, that's, that's just what we tell ourselves to feel better. God was that, that person's job, that person's mission on this earth, how short or how long was completed. And now they're to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So I, I don't know about you, but if I've been pain, pained and afflicted in my body and I'm ultimately present with Christ, guess what I am? I'm healed. I know that's not good preaching. I know that's not good theology. I know you want to be healed on this side of heaven because then you say you lost your battle. But the reality is I would suggest that they won your battle because you're with Christ now. And while I, I, my guess based on biblical study is there's, not, there's no more tears. There's no more pain. There's no more crying. There's no more sadness. There's no more depression. There's no, none of these things. There's just this healing that has taken place. Yes, we have tears and we have pain and we have sadness, but this person who we have pain and sadness for, they're just like, I'm worshiping. I'm good. I know that's a tough, that's a tough way to view things. It's a difficult thing, the way to see things, but when you can see it that way, it brings health to you. As the believer, it brings health to your heart to know, hey, one day I will see you again. Just not today. Not until my time is finished and the work that I, God has given me has been completed. And the, one, I, I've got so many stories I can share about that. I have friends that have suffered and passed away. I have family members that have suffered and passed away. And I remember way, way, way back to the very beginning of my time in ministry full time, my aunt, who was like a, a second mom to me, she was in the labor delivery room when I was born. We had this, just, this, this unbelievable connection. She was like a mom. She, my uncle owned several restaurants, and she would get him to close his restaurant for a day to have my birthday party there. We're going to close the restaurant for three hours, four hours, during lunch to have my nephew's birthday. And he's like, what? And of course, like a good husband, he did whatever she said. And so he did. And this was a woman, I mean, she, they didn't even serve breakfast. But when I'd stay the night at her house, we'd go and we'd have breakfast at the restaurant. The cooks would just cook us up breakfast. This woman was so near and dear to my heart to find out that she was struck with cancer crushed me. She was the healthiest person I knew. I was in my early 30s. 
late 20s, early 30s, this woman in her 50s was healthier than I was. She was in better shape than I was. She was a, a, a lover of Jesus, and, and I was just like crushed, and I would pray all the time. Matter of fact, I was like six weeks or, 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 or three months or so into my new ministry position when I went to my pastor's, I got to go home, and I got to go pray for my aunt because I'm going to go lay hands on her, and she's going to be healed because that's what I believe, and I walked in there, and she was didn't look like herself, and I laid hands on her, and I prayed, and I believed, and I knew that God was going to heal her, and then she died, and I was devastated. It was like my mother's sister, and it was just this, oh, this is killing me. God, where were you in this? I prayed. I believed. I just knew it was going to happen. His will was for her to go in that moment. And when I look back on her life and the legacy that she has left, whew, man, she, she, she lived a good life. She accomplished much. She's got a family who loves her and remembers her and, and lives the way that she would want them to. The reality, and all of that being said, what matters the most to God when it comes to prayer, above everything and above all else, if you're taking notes, write this down. This is maybe the last note that you have. You must have an honest relationship with God through Christ. After all, that's everything. That is everything. You know, the Bible, I'm so thankful to Jim Varda for sharing that this morning in our time of prayer together, that the, the, the greatest command that Christ ever gave us, the only one that truly it, 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 it is supreme above all, was go into all the nations, make disciples, baptize, teach, lead people to Christ. That is it. That is the church. That's the call of every person in the church is to go and to make disciples of all nations. That's the call. That's it. Yes, there's so many other things that are so important to Jesus. Justice is important to Jesus. Diversity is important to Jesus. Racism is important to Jesus. All these things are so important and critical to Jesus, but they all are subjected to the one. Go and make disciples. Because here's the reality. If you are making disciples and people are genuinely on fire for Jesus and they are disciples for Christ, guess what goes away from them? Racism. Division. Justice. They become these people who live that way. The problem is we have these platforms where we, we preach just this. We preach just social justice. We preach just racism. We preach just this. And, and let me, the good things, not critical of any of them, but they, the gospel is very simple. Have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Go and make disciples. When you make disciples, you will teach people to be just. When you make disciples, you will condemn racism. When you make disciples, you will supply for the orphan and for the widow. This is the commands of Christ, but the very first and supreme of them all is to make disciples of all nations. Because discipleship is what changes people. It's what causes them to come from this place where they knew Jesus into this place where they know Jesus. Where there's no doubt about who Jesus is in their life. 
And because I know him, I love him, I love her, I love them, I love everyone that I ever come in contact with and even those that I never come in contact with. That's the gospel. Yes, churches have a connection in one way or the other to something important, but you've got to be very, very, very careful that we walk the biblical line of what the church is. And I don't mean the church in the four walls, but the church. We are the church. What is your job as a member of the body of Christ? To make disciples. That's your job. By making disciples, teaching people to surrender all they have of themselves to all they know of Jesus is what's going to actually correct things in this world. Right the ship, so to speak but it's through discipleship. So you have to have, I am completely and totally convinced that churches around the world are filled with people who know about religion, who know God through his son, Jesus Christ. And I'm absolutely convinced that there are untold thousands and thousands of people who look like the part, but are very separated in their heart. My desire is to pastor a church that not just looks the part, but acts the part, lives the part. Not lives perfectly because you're going to fail. That's already established. Each day we fall, fall short of the glory of God. We are going to fail. But that collectively as the body of Christ, we love people so much that we are a reflection of who Christ is. That only takes place through genuine, legitimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus.